If you turn uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, that's page 972 in the Church Bibles, and if you have a large print, it's 1511. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 1 to 15. us uh, are born with uh, hearts of rebellion, uh, and it doesn't take us long in order to show uh, that kind of rebellion. And one of the uh, phrases that I used to say when I was growing up, uh, that my mother tried to uh, get out of me, was the phrase, why should I? So when uh, she would ask me to do something, I would say, well, why should I? do that. Why should I? And one time, uh, my mother bought a a picture frame, and inside uh, there was a picture of a mother hen with her chicks around her, and she was pointing at the chicks, and mother hen said, and it was in big letters on the top, I'm the mummy, that's why. And uh, I learned fairly soon not to say, why should I, in that kind of an attitude, But I would often say, well, why? Or what's the point? And even though it might sound nicer, the attitude in my heart was still rebellious, and my mother knew that. And in the end, uh, when she had this picture, she would call us in, and she would point at it so she didn't have to waste her breath, explaining what really we already knew. But there are other people that we should also obey rather than ask, why should I? If a, if a police officer is enforcing the law and you were to say, well, why should I? They could say, well, because I'm a police officer. Teachers have authority in their classrooms. If a doctor or a lawyer advised you and you would say, well, why should I do that? They would be in their rights to say, well, because I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer. I've trained for however many years to be in this position so I can advise you on what you should do. Well, Jesus has just been preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he has outlined what life in God's kingdom looks like. And it ended with a summons to listen to his word and to do what he says. He talks about the wise and foolish builders in chapter 7. And he says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is claiming his words are what we ought to live by. In fact, more than that, he's saying my words are what you must live by. My words have authority. And in the next section of Matthew, Matthew preempts the rebellious question in our hearts, which might well be, well, Jesus, why should I? Why should I do what you say? Why should I put your words into practice? Because there are a whole load of other words that are calling at me and asking me to follow what they want to do, including my own sinful heart. And Matthew answers the question by saying, 
The reason you should do what Jesus says is because he is the king who is God. That's why. Jesus is the king who is God. That's why. In Matthew's gospel, he is showing us that Jesus is king. And just to recap where we are in the gospel, at the beginning of the gospel, we see the birth narratives, which is the history of Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is both man and God. He is shown to be king by the homage that the wise men give to him. He is shown to be king by the hatred that the other king in Israel at the time, Herod, had for him as he tries to murder him. He is shown to be king in that he has a herald called John the Baptist who heralds his coming. And in chapter 4 we see that he is qualified to be the king who saves us from our sins because of his absolute purity as he is tempted by the devil and comes through that temptation completely pure. We see his authority with his preaching, his calling the disciples. And at the end of chapter 4, we see how he heals multitudes of sick. And then in chapters 5 to 7, this king, Jesus, speaks as king of what life in his kingdom looks like. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the sermon... We read the response of the people. Look at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The crowds were amazed at his authority. He speaks by his own authority. He speaks as only God can speak. He doesn't call upon some other rabbi from the past. He speaks by his own authority. And Matthew wants to show us that Jesus speaks by his own authority and can do so because Jesus is the king who is God. That's really the theme of Matthew chapter 8 and 9. The power that he shows over disease, over demons, over death, over nature as he calms the storm, over sin itself as he forgives sins in chapter 9, is coupled with segments of radical demands for discipleship, where Jesus calls us to follow him at the cost of everything else. All of this shows us Jesus Christ is the King who is God. But what kind of God is this? What is God-like. When we think of people in power, tragically, that power and authority is often used for people's own ends. We see power abused in our world. Well, Matthew explains the mission of Jesus, what he's come to use his power for, actually, right at the beginning of the Gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 21, as they named the child Jesus. The reason is because he has come to save his people from their sins. He has come to save his people from their sins. He is God among us. He is all-powerful, and that power is to be used to save us from our sins. And in order to do that, he he uses his power throughout the Gospels to begin to turn back the impact of sin in people's lives. 
So there's no abuse of power here. His power is used for our everlasting good. So it shows that he is God, but it shows that he is a God who has come to save us from our sins for our eternal good. And this power used for our good is seen throughout Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. And we can see that uh, to be true as we read verses 1 to 18. So let me read Matthew chapter 8 and verses 1 to 18 and let's see the, the power of Jesus being used for the good of others. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found faith, uh, found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. This is God's word. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. But here we see a question answered, which is this. Who are his people? Who are the people that Jesus has come to save? And Jesus uses his power here for the good of three people who are all, in various ways, social outcasts. Jesus shows that he is the Messiah for outcasts. In verse 1, he comes down from the mountainside, which is where he has been uh, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount. So he comes down, and his teaching has drawn crowds. If you, uh, you don't need to turn there, but at the beginning of chapter 5, uh, Jesus went up the mountain and sat with his disciples to get away from crowds who at the end of chapter 4 were flocking to him for healing. But by the end of chapter 7, there seems to be a bigger crowd who have come because they want to hear the teaching that Jesus is giving. 
But at this point in his ministry, people know that Jesus can heal, that he has power to heal, and that Jesus speaks with authority. And it's during this time, as large crowds begin to follow him, that there is a leper that comes to meet with Jesus, and he wants Jesus Christ to be the Messiah for the unclean. Now, leprosy today usually refers to a specific disease, Hansen's disease. But in Bible times, any number of skin diseases could be classed as leprosy. And leprosy brought horror to the ancient world. They feared it greatly. In Leviticus, if someone has leprosy, they are classed and declared as unclean, No one can touch them, and they have to be put outside the camp until the leprosy has been healed or cleansed. The only treatment that could be given was quarantine. Lepers were excluded from society. They weren't allowed in towns or villages. They lived on the outskirts. They had no part in the community, and they were abhorred. In fact, they were looked upon as the living dead. But worse than the physical uh, skin disease of the skin flaking away horribly, they were unable to participate in the worship of God because they were defiled. They were cut off from the community life. This is why when he comes to Jesus, notice he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him, but his great concern is that Jesus would make him clean. It was the cleansing that he desired because the defilement, the exclusion from the worship of God is his greatest concern. And all this makes it all the more shocking that Jesus even is with this man at all. That this man would even come and approach Jesus. It was shocking. Lepers wouldn't normally approach anybody because people would begin to run a mile from them. And in fact, according to the law, they weren't allowed to approach. Listen to what Leviticus uh, chapter 13 uh, says. Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean, they must live alone, they must live outside the camp. And so that this leper came to Jesus at all was a complete shock in this passage. But the leper saw something in Jesus that made him come. This man who was excluded from the society came to Jesus. And look, he kneels down and he worships him. He's excluded from the worship in the community, but he comes to Jesus and he worships him. He kneels before him. We don't know if he knew the the full uh, deity of Jesus, but he certainly knew that Jesus could make him clean and restore him back into the community. He says to Jesus at the end of verse 2, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
There's no question here of, of the power of Jesus, is there? He knows Jesus could, if he wants to, make him clean. The question is, Jesus, are you willing to make me clean? It's a question of Jesus' willingness, not a question of his power. Would Jesus Christ be willing to cleanse one who is an outcast, one who is unclean, one who has no right to even approach Jesus? Is Jesus willing? He was so dirty and defiled, he was not sure Jesus would do it. According to the verse in Leviticus there, his hair would have been unkempt, he would have looked a mess. Would Jesus heal him? Would Jesus cleanse him? A normal Jewish teacher would have nothing to do with him. But look at what Jesus does at the beginning of verse 3. This is another huge shock. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus touched the man. He shows his compassion. Touching him is, is a shocking thing for him to do. To touch a leper, well, it would have been defiling. But Jesus is not a normal Jewish teacher. Jesus is not any normal man. Jesus does not contract defilement when touching the leper. Rather, Jesus makes the unclean clean. Look at the end of verse 3. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus is willing and able. He speaks, be clean. And immediately this leper is cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus makes the unclean clean. And in the Bible, leprosy is a picture of sin. Sin defiles. Sin is contagious. Sin puts us outside of the presence of God. Although the physical nature of leprosy is horrific, the need for cleansing is greater. And our greatest need is cleansing from sin. The sin which defiles us. The sin which makes us in God's presence, absolutely filthy. We need cleansing. All of us, if we are honest with ourselves, if we stand before God, we can feel defiled, we can feel filthy, we can feel just horrible, like the leper. And we come to Jesus with the same question, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus is willing and able to cleanse us from the sin which defiles us. Because Jesus is pure. Jesus has no sin. And he exchanges places with us on the cross. He pays for our sin. He becomes cursed and defiled in our place so that we can be declared clean before God. Perhaps like the leper, you feel so dirty that you wonder whether God is even willing. But you don't know what I've done, you may say. But Jesus does. He knows everything. 
And he is willing to cleanse all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who believe that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And his cleansing is immediate, and his cleansing is complete. Nobody is too dirty for Jesus. And we can praise the Lord for that, can't we? But then in verse 4, there is this strange request. It says, Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Well, it seems strange to us as we read this. You can imagine uh, the leper. He's, he's got this defiling skin disease and Jesus touches him and this, is, this disappears. This man is clean. He, and and he, he looks different. You would expect him to be jumping around and dancing for joy and, and telling everybody what Jesus has done. And here Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone, but, but go show yourself to the priest. Well, why does Jesus do that? Well, the leper is cleansed. But in order to be accepted back into society, there was a biblical ritual that the man had to undergo. Uh, That ritual is actually found in Leviticus chapter 14. Uh, In Leviticus 14, the the, the procedure for uh, cleansing of leprosy was that the priest would have to uh, check the person out and announce that he is clean. Or she is clean. And after that has happened, they would make a sacrifice of uh, some birds. Then the person would wash. And then eight days later, there would be another sacrifice of a lamb. That was the gift of Moses, if you like. The sacrifice had to be made. So there was an eight-day period that had to be gone through in order for the man to be declared clean by the priest. The sacrifice at the end, the, the, the lamb, is this gift of Moses. And so after this time, this eight days, he would be at the temple, and everyone at the temple would be able to declare, yes, this is a genuine cleansing from leprosy. And once it was verified by the priest, it would verify that this man was cleansed, and so people would then say, well, how on earth has this happened? And he would then say, well, it was Jesus. Jesus touched me, and he made me clean. And that was a testimony. It was verified. And everyone at the temple could not then deny the power of Jesus to cleanse even lepers from their leprosy. He wasn't officially clean till eight days later, so he had to wait. And this would be a testimony to everybody and to those who saw the miracle. When Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin, our life should testify. People should see us and should notice the difference that Jesus has made. And when they see that difference, you can point them to Jesus and say, He is my Saviour. He is the one that has done this work. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Does our lives, do our lives testify to that Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. Jesus Christ is the Messiah for the unclean. 
But Matthew's next account talks of another outsider. Look at verse 5. When, the, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Well, a centurion uh, was a, a junior officer in the auxiliary forces of the Roman Empire. Uh, a centurion was in charge of about 100 men, and different, uh, different units of, 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 of these 100 men were all over the empire, occupying the land that the Romans ruled. Here is a man who was in charge of a unit of occupying forces in Israel of the Roman Empire. He was not a Jew. He was an occupying soldier. He would have not been appreciated by the Jewish people. And here is this man, occupying Israel, occupying the Jewish people, coming to a Jew for help. He needs Jesus to be the Messiah for the Gentiles. Gentiles is uh, non-Jews. And the centurion is concerned, not for himself, but for his servant, who also is a foreigner, it seems. The, 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 the servant is seriously ill. Notice there the, the threefold uh, way that it's described in verse 6. He's lying at home, so he's not doing his job as a servant. He's lying at home. He's paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. He's concerned about his servant. And he's asking, really, Jesus, could you help me? And then in verse 7, we come to another shocking statement. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Well, offering to go to the house of a centurion was a very unusual thing for a Jew to do because a Gentile house would have been unclean to a Jew. They would not normally set foot in the house of a Gentile, but Jesus Christ was willing to go into the home and heal the centurion's servant. Like the leper who falls down and worships Jesus, uh, the centurion recognises his, his unworthiness to stand before Jesus, to, to even ask Jesus this question, really. He says uh, there uh, in verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. He doesn't think Jesus should come because he doesn't deserve it. But, and here's the key, neither does he think it's necessary. Look at what he says. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He believed Jesus' word is so powerful that he just has to speak the word, and the centurion's servant will be healed from a distance. And he believes this because he recognizes authority when he sees it. Look at verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. As a soldier, he makes commands. Go, come, do. And those commands are obeyed. And he believes that Jesus commands not just people like he does, but Jesus commands disease itself. But his faith goes even further than that. Because for the centurion at this time, when he issued a command, for his soldiers it wasn't the command of a centurion. It was the delegated authority given to him by the emperor. 
So when the centurion issued a command, go, come, do, for the soldier, they were obeying the emperor of Rome. It all trickled down so that when the centurion issued a command, it was to be seen as from the emperor. And if it was disobeyed, they weren't just disobeying a centurion, they were disobeying the emperor himself. And because of this belief that, or because of this structure in the Roman Empire, the centurion believed that when Jesus issued a command, it was the command of the authority which he was given, it was the command of God. When Jesus speaks, the centurion believes, you can hear at a distance because you are not just any man. This man is a man who speaks with the authority of God. And God doesn't need to be somewhere in order to heal. God is all-powerful. This is not just, by the way, blind uh, faith. He has seen Jesus. Or, if he hasn't seen him, he has heard of what Jesus has done and heard of what Jesus has said. And as he has heard and as he may have seen, he sees Jesus and he says, you can heal from right here, right now, by just saying a word. And that's true for us too, that we don't have faith in a, in a fairy tale or in some stories written long ago. These words are true historical words we see in Jesus, very God and very man, and we see what Jesus has done, and at the end of the Gospel, I might spoil a story for you, but he's risen from the dead. We see this, and it is true. And so we base our faith on the Word of God because it's a true word of authority. This man's faith in the Word of Jesus amazed Jesus. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Well, there, there should have been faith in Israel like this. But in Israel, the Old Testament was read in the synagogues. They should have recognized their Messiah. But most of the Jews rejected their Messiah. And they're shown up by this Roman centurion. In the end, it's not race or being from a Christian country or a Christian family that matters. What matters is, is faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be many surprises when we see who is and who is not part of God's kingdom. That's what verses 11 and 12 are about. There's, there's a great shock really here that it's the centurion that has faith in the word and not the Jews. And in verse 11 he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Jewish uh, people pictured the end of time as a great banquet where only the Jews were invited. And the banquet idea comes from Isaiah chapter 25. Let me read you uh, Isaiah 25 and verse uh, Isaiah 25 and verse 6. It says, On this mountain 
The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. They were right to view the end of time pictured as a great banquet, but they missed out the part here where it says it's for all people, including Roman centurions. All who put their faith in Jesus will be able to be at this banquet. The many from the east and the west are foreigners or Gentiles that sit alongside the, the Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs and they'll be there at the feast because they've had faith in Jesus Christ. But the subjects of the kingdom are talking of the Jews who reject Jesus Christ as king. That's not all Jews. The Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were Jews. But all those who reject Jesus Christ will not be at the banquet. And in fact, it says here that they will be in outer darkness. If you picture the banquet as a place where the lights are on, the outer darkness is as far away from the banquet as you can go. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth speaks of the anguish and torment of those who reject Jesus Christ. This talks of hell. And you can't claim your place at the banquet because of your nationality or your baptism or your whatever. The only way we can be at this banquet is if we have faith in the host, Jesus Christ. That we have faith that his word has power to save. Those who only have outward claims will be outside the banquet. And verse 13 shows that it's only faith in Jesus Christ that saves. He said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. His servant is healed. As he says, as you believe. They, the, the, the centurion had no doubt that Jesus Christ would heal his servant. As he expected it to be done, so it was done. His faith in the word of, of Jesus was, was found to be right and good. There is a Messiah for the foreigner, for the Gentile, Jesus Christ. And for our salvation, we also must have faith in the word of Christ as the centurion did. He came to Jesus with a poverty of spirit. He recognized his great need that only Jesus can provide salvation for his servant. His sense of unworthiness was not down to the fact he wasn't Jewish. His sense of unworthiness was due to the fact that he was face to face before the authority of God. And he believed that Jesus' word was for the good of him and his servant, and he had faith in that word. Now we believe that what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, we believe that that word, as we believe it, can save us from our sins. As we believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. We have to have faith in that to be saved. But as Christians, we also must, like this centurion, have faith that all of the word of, of, of Jesus is for our good. And so that as we have faith in that word, we obey the word of Christ as he speaks it with authority. 
God's word of authority is not to abuse us, but it's for our good so we can flourish. And it takes faith to believe what Jesus Christ says, not just about how we are made right with God, but also about what Jesus says about money, what Jesus says about sex, what Jesus says about relationships, what Jesus says about how we eat and drink, how we love others, and how his words is, it takes faith to believe that his words has more authority than my feelings, or more authority than my peers, what they're telling me I should do. More authority than the pressures of everyday life that would make it easier, it seems, for me to disobey the word of Christ. It takes faith in his word to continue to obey. But that faith is worthwhile putting in Christ because it is for our good, just like it was with the centurion. Well, after the leper and the centurion, there is one more outsider that Jesus Christ is Messiah for. Uh, There's a famous uh, uh, prayer that many Jewish men used to pray. He would wake up and say, I thank God I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Being a woman at this time uh, was, in some ways, to be a second-class citizen, but not to Jesus. Jesus has compassion for Peter's mother-in-law that shows he is the Messiah for women. Jesus uh, Christ comes back uh, into Peter's house from where he's been uh, ministering, uh, and when he arrives, there is Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Uh, fever at this time is dangerous. There was no uh, antibiotics or anything like that. This, this, this would mean death if Jesus did not heal. And he comes into the house and he sees the mother-in-law. There's no request made here. He sees her and he touches her and the fever leaves her. The healing is complete, which is shown the fact that she begins to wait on them. She gets up. There's no convalescence period needed. Right away, there she is, waiting on them, serving them. There is a deliverance from fever and an infusion of strength. And it's another picture there, I believe, of salvation, isn't it? That Jesus forgives us of our sins and 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 puts in us his Holy Spirit that enables us to serve him. The infusion of the Spirit enables us to serve Christ fully. Jesus Christ comes to, to, to be Messiah for a leper, for a centurion, and for a woman. All of which would have been outsiders at this time. And Jesus Christ is the Messiah for outsiders. And he shows this in this passage by healing those who were outsiders. But there is more shown in the fact that Jesus became an outsider. He was crucified on a cross outside the city, just like the leper was outside the city. He was cut off from God, 
forsaken by his father and suffered the outer darkness that he talks of with the centurion. He was an outsider both on earth and outsider in heaven as he paid the penalty for our sin. That outer darkness could be signified as the the darkness came visibly and physically around him and around where he was crucified. All this to pay for our sins so we could be brought inside and in the presence of God. He heals the leper, the centurion and the woman, all outsiders. But it only shows the greater work he did on the cross where all who put their faith in Jesus are brought inside the family of God and into his presence forevermore. And we're going to remember that uh, at the the Lord's table in a moment. Uh, But before uh, we do that, we're going to sing. Uh, Before we come to the table, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's stand as we respond in song.